You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. William Gibson is the author of the novels Neuromancer, Count Zero, Burning Chrome, Mona Lisa Overdrive, Virtual Light, Idoru, All Tomorrow's Parties, Pattern Recognition, and Spook Country. His new novel is Zero History. Thank you for joining me, Bill. Oh, thank you. Bill, you know, the last time we spoke, you told me about how you thought that had you gone to your publisher back right after Neuromancer and said, I want to write a novel about the 21st century where there's a plague that's taken out half the world and, you know, that's covered the world, that um, essentially the 21st century as we now know it has happened, your uh, publisher would have kicked you out <laughs> of the, yeah. the office. Indeed, and here we are. <laughs> here we are. You know, it strikes me that that brought to mind uh, something that I've always been interested in is the idea of writing novels about the present as if you're perceiving them from the past with a little bit of the information about the present. So you write about the present as if it were science fiction. Yeah. Throw yourself back into your 1980 self. Give yourself enough clues so that you can write intelligently about what's happening right mm -hmm. now. And then just reimagine the present as seen through the lens of the science fiction of the past. And I, I think that's what you're doing with these, with your new novels. I call it kind of retro, retro prescience. Well, actually, when you were describing that, I was, you know, my, wow, that's a good idea, module was going off. But I was imagining writing a, a science fiction novel in which some really bright, troubled, probably tubercular young man in Oklahoma in 1897 is, is writing, a, writing, writing a novel about a world of wireless telephony. <laughs> and, and it would be our world, but he would have gotten it. The thing that would be great about it was how wrong he'd gotten it. <laughs> and one way he'd get it wrong this is a characteristic way that science science fiction writers get it wrong, is that the the role of wireless telephony in in the this realm of the future would be really heroic, <laughs> and Tom Swift would be be saving you know saving America with his wireless cellular telephone, and and we still I think tend to do that. This, you know, I, I was aware of being unable not to do that with cyberspace when I wrote Neuromancer. Like there's a, a point in Neuromancer where there's this, this kind of sneaky expository lump that squirts out at the, squirts out at the reader and someone just happens to have a, a, a television on and there's a documentary, a history channel thing on saying cyberspace, the realm of vision, you know. And, but in that little info dump, it says it's used for everything. You know, children use it. It's, it's a ubiquitous 
ubiquitous aspect of our our society. But because I, I my guess, I mean, it seemed obvious to me that something like that would be ubiquitous. But when it came to telling my story and telling like an adventure story, I just couldn't. I couldn't use it that way, and it became this sort of heroic realm of outlaw hackers, and and you can kind of hear the theremin tuning up in the background every every time I brought it back into, back into the story. And I remember thinking, wow, this is just inherent to the genre, and to the extent that I know and love the genre there's no way to get there's no way to get around doing that another kind of novel a novel a novel that would a novel that regards science fiction as a narrative strategy rather than a genre could find plenty of other ways to do it i i think if i think margaret atwood could do could have done it very differently because I think she's a good example of someone, a novelist to whom it's, it's a narrative strategy. She's not, uh, she's not from there, so she, you know, she doesn't have the kinds of uh, cultural feelings about it that I still do. Even though I'm like largely quite conflicted about those cultural values, I know I still have them. Well, it's interesting, and I've never thought of it that way, that, of course, science would always ultimately be the hero of a science fiction novel. That's a great perspective. I've never really yeah. put that way. Well, science fiction is one way of looking at it, according to my good friend John Clute, the, the science fiction critic and historian in, in London. A brilliant man. A brilliant man, uh, is that is that science fiction quote as we have as we have known it has been an aspect of of the what some historians or social theorists would call the modern project and the modern project began somewhere in maybe in the 19th century. I'm I'm not sure, but it sort of began with industrialization. Mm -hmm. And through the late 19th and all of the 20th century, it it progressed. But some of those same theorists would would now say that it, it's it ended and that we're now in in a postmodern society with postmodern postmodern cultural values although a lot of the old ones are still around and in the process we we've become largely post-industrial and one thing i've if that's true one of the interesting one of the interesting things about it is the extent to which there are incredibly large amounts of people to, for whom science is not the hero. That's an interesting observation, you know, there, too. There yeah. are, are, are like huge, really vital social movements today that their, their rhetoric is, is flagrantly anti-scientific. But yeah. they tend to be people who 
say they, they tend to be anti-Darwinists who would nonetheless instantly accept the, the result of a DNA paternity test as, as genuine proof without bothering to think about the flagrant contradiction <laughs> of those two those two positions. But you know too, there are the um, ascientific people too are the people who might not regard science as a as a hero are also on the other side of the spectrum too with the you know looking at what uh, science has done to the planet with regards to global warming. Now, a mm -hmm. lot of people aren't happy with that and a lot of people don't necessarily see aggressive science as the cure and it's more an aggressive retreat to those pastoral values to the natural farming techniques that, that's a well science I, I think the where the I think the real dichotomy there is is the difference between science and technology mm -hmm, mm -hmm. science and technology aren't aren't the same thing you need you generally need a bit of science, particularly these, these days, uh, to put your technology together, the one that you hope will become an emergent technology mm -hmm. and, and make you a ton of money by cha changing the world. But technology is actually a byproduct of, of scientific inquiry and curiosity and the urge to make a the urge to make a dollar and I there's an underlying I don't think of my <clears throat> I don't think of myself as a, a didactic novelist and I really hope I'm not because no you're it tends to be well it, it's a lower function I, I was taught that in as an English major, that, that didacticism in, in in the novel is an indication of a novel that's not really doing everything, not really doing everything it could. Well, you know, reading these novels, and I read them as science fiction novels, in that I think you write science fiction at a prose level. You're not a, a, a guy, at, and these novels are not necessarily about here's this kind of technology I'm going to write a I'm going to aim at this yeah. and see what it does you get under it. It, it I think it really comes from very much on the prose level when you sit down to describe something when you sit down to describe a character it <clears throat> comes very, out of you naturally yeah that's very true and and you you're probably the only person who's ever made that observation I, I've thought it myself often enough but not not quite that not quite that clearly for me the the inventive imaginary aspect of of my fiction happens at a prose level a even level. it even happens or even a sub sentence mm -hmm. level it's about uh, neologisms and and how language could be used to describe things that don't yet exist. Uh, unexpected pairings of words yeah. that, that that between those words leaves a space where the reader's mind has to create something and it has to explore an yeah. idea that has yeah. occurred to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and uh, 
thanks for thanks for telling me that. <laughs> it's just a good thing to start the day with. Somebody gets it. It's it's. Um, I took it for granted. I had a lot of. Uh, I might be one of the first generation of of science fiction writers to come to the writing of it with uh, a head full of academic critical theories about science fiction. Now granted, I had been a classic 12-year-old bedroom-dwelling troglodyte <laughs> science fiction fan. Of course. Yeah, back in, you know, back in the, even the, into the late the late 50s and, and but I really got going in in the early 60s. So I had had that like total roots experience before I got all the before I got all the theory. And I got all the theory after I'd sort of outgrown science fiction the way boys used to tend to do. And so I, I, I was like, I think I was self-aware to some, to some extent when I started, when I started working. And one of the things I tell, like I had didn't, I sort of thought, I, I think I basically rejected most of the, the critical theory I read about science fiction out of my own cultural sense of what it was. But there were a few things that, a few things that, that resonated for me, and one was the idea uh, of one was the idea that the function well, the function of science fiction that sets it apart from other other modes of fiction <clears throat> is the need uh, a need to induce cognitive dissonance in in the reader. And when I was first painfully, slowly trying to learn to write fiction, I was really only functioning at a, a sentence and sub-sentence level. But I had that awareness of the need to induce cognitive dissonance. So I think I started from the beginning to try to do that at, at a very micro level level of the text and I gradually realized that it was possible using tools that actually have in our culture more to do with poetry than with prose mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. to you could sort of landmine a sentence or a paragraph with these little cognitive dissonance bombs that could sort of function subliminally and and that began to fascinate me, and I, I began to suspect that I had read a lot of prose over the years that that achieved that, but I hadn't had I hadn't had a I hadn't had a name for it. One place where where I really see that going on is in Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast oh, tril what trilogy, where where the so. Yeah, the prose is, is like, you can't tell. You, I read it, and I don't know why exactly. I kind of look at a paragraph, and I don't know why it makes me feel so strange. But I do know why it's down in the, it's down in the deep structure of the sentences that he's tripping you up and, and keeping you 
keeping you off balance through the whole through the whole thing. It, it's kind of hallucinogenic with that book. It's it, it, yeah. it anticipates that. Yeah, if you if you want to have a really strange experience, and for me it was like a, a humbling experience, a great uh, a great learning experience. And there's a collection. I can't remember that. Peaks Progress, by edited by Maeve Gilmore, that was published in 1984 by Penguin. Just a huge paperback anthology of, of obscure bits and pieces of Peak. And one thing it has in it is that it has every draft of the first two or three pages of the first Gorman Guest book wow. in, in the order. <laughs> and there are about 60 of them. Wow. And and to watch them mutate from what he began with into the, the first pages of the book, I don't know how many years that represented. Like he he worked for years on a, just a cup trying to do the first couple of pages, and the thing he begins with bears no relationship to to the beginning of the book. It's actually a picture of his his boyhood in in China, mm. and, and it it changes but like with painful painful slowness and <clears throat> that came out that book was published the same year that Neuromancer was published and I remember reading those things and <laughs> thinking wow I'm not the only one I, I thought that I was like some kind of uh, fabulous novelistic cripple that I had to do these things over and over and over, but but Peak did the same thing. Well, you know, the way you described your process of waking up as a science fiction prose writer is in many ways the way that um, artificial intelligences are described as kind of waking up into consciousness, and, and it strikes me there's an interesting parallel there. Yeah, there is something, there is something like that. There's a, every time, Every time I start to write a book, I go through a really not very pleasant process that it seems to me to amount to the booting up of some <laughs> structure within me that that of, of structure of, of sort of learned process that isn't ordinarily there. And it's, it's capable of doing things that I can't consciously do. It's occasionally and very unreliably capable of doing things that I can't consciously do. And, and I almost hesitate to talk about it because it, it sounds crazy to some extent, but I suspect from observing other writers to the extent that one ever can in their process, a lot of them go through, go through something, something similar. I mean, uh, it's, it's it, I'm not a musician, and uh, but I love music, and and the the nature of being a musician is utterly alien and mysterious to me. So it so it fascinates me. But when I, I watch musicians playing and just relating with their instruments and learning learning songs or writing songs i think it's very there's something very similar there there's some structure that 
education and practice has woven through them that that comes together and comes to the fore and does what you need to do to make music. And it's not that person's brain sitting there going fingers move, you know, it's something it's something else. It it sounds the way you describe it, it sounds like you um are writing a new operating self system for yourself to boot up that, that as you boot it up to create each book that each book yeah well it's similar i mean it's it would be <clears throat> it's, it's iterations mm-hmm. of the same the same system but i think that when we learn to write mm-hmm. when when we learn to write we do in effect to create a new sort of secondary op- operating system that has to function function in specific ways that aren't native to human beings really <laughs> it's it's something to, it's something it's something different it grows out of something that that we do naturally and it grows out of language and memory and, and story things, yeah it's story and things that everyone shares but novels are incredibly complexly specific cultural artifacts and one of the things that always stuns me when I publish a book is is it always brings me back to the recognition that what I do is make make black marks on white paper according according to this like infinitely complicated cultural system that's evolved uh, you know over over thousands and millions of years and then those are are shipped in trucks to other human beings who sit and interpret them through their own infinitely complex cultural system and have sort of magical CG-like experiences in their own minds <laughs> that aren't necessarily the one I was having, probably are never the one I was having when I was making the marks on the white paper. But that's what we... That's what we do. That's something about the mystery of how, the mystery of the difference between literature and cinema. Mm. Literature seems so much more complex to me and so much more powerful because, in a sense, when you sit down to read, you become a creator. Yeah. Well, every every person who sits down and reads your book is a creator in the sense that they have to create that experience well, in their mind. people don't that's exactly true and and but that's not part of our cultural our basic cultural sense of what of what reading is mm-hmm. and and that leads to i can lead i can lead to a, a lot of confusion i take it for granted that the reader completes Virtual, I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to put a percentage on it, but a, but quite a, a high percentage of the text. I, I give the reader sort of a structure, and the reader then dresses it, and that's a really important awareness for a writer of fiction to have, because that's where you learn when to under-describe 
and and when it's okay to over describe as I sometimes love to do but one of the reasons that people people think case in in pattern recognition it must be like really very attractive and uh, you know very good looking very good looking woman they're able to think that because she's never described mm -hmm. she's never described and when she sees herself in the mirror she she all she sees is what she imagines are her flaws but the way the character the way the character is constructed I think the reader is always there with her as she looks into the mirror and they're going, no, you're beautiful. You're so cute. <laughs> and, and it really, it, it all, if, if, you know, if there was any more description, if another character described her in, in any, more, any more detail, people wouldn't be able to, to project. And what that actually taps into is that sort of biologically driven projection people experience when they're falling in love and what they're actually seeing isn't the other person they're seeing their their idealized image of what the other would be and then there's a point where that the biology wears off and they have to come to terms with who they're who they're with and then they're either not with them or <laughs> they decide they really like who they actually are well, that reading <clears throat> reading science fiction is like falling in love. That sounds. Uh, I think uh, you'll get a lot of agreement on that on that uh, yeah, approach. It, it is in a way. It, it's um, falling in love with a reinvention of the world. Well, sometimes a reinvention. Sometimes a reinvention. Actually, a reinvention of the world. I think is always is always a good thing because we become. We become stuck in in narratives, cultural narratives, and our own personal narratives about about how things how things are. And science fiction teaches. In order to appreciate science fiction, the reader has to learn to to go with alternate versions of of how things are. So all science fiction, even even science fiction I would regard as quite deliberately reactionary teaches a kind of, of profoundly basic relativity about situations and the narratives we use to interpret them with. So I think it's actually like a pretty healthy modality all, all told. Science fiction is never very popular in authoritarian societies <laughs> because some I can never remember who who said it there was a German German philosopher who said the the you know the basic root of insubordination is curiosity and science fiction is the literature of curiosity indeed now I, I want to ask you one question about your most recent novel uh, it's a novel that coalesces around Hubertus Bejon or Bigend or Big End, depending on how mouth uh, munchingly American you're going to approach that name 
<laughs> well, as a you know, a, a, <clears throat> a tragic non-francophone myself, in, in spite of my my many years in in Canada, I I call it, I just call him Big End. I assumed that in London he would be Big End, or in any English-speaking any Anglophone enclave, he he would be Big End, and he would probably encourage it because it's like it's kind of powerful branding <laughs> you know um he strikes me as being uh in many ways like the ultimate bond villain but he's not a villain and, and i'm wondering in in if you've written i think three novels that cover around him will you ever enter his consciousness can you no, I I don't I don't think I don't think I would I don't think I would ever try. He's a he's a funny sort of unusual sort of character for me because when he when he turned up in pattern recognition initially, I didn't think he would have very much to do with the the deep structure of the book. I I thought he was just a kind of rather embarrassingly obvious walk-on <laughs> character who, whose purpose was to to uh, send Case on a quest and while giving her an unlimited credit card and, and being rather ominous about it. Cue the theremin. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I had set up a scene where they they you where where they meet where they meet and he's pitching pitching this gig to her and I didn't expect there I thought they'd be sitting in the truck you know there they'd be you know sitting in his 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 Hummer Hummer two that he was driving and and he had. Do the do the deal, and and then he would just be sort of in the background and for the rest of the, the story. But he took over and drove drove up to Primrose Hill and had this strange <laughs> conversation with her, where, where he revealed himself as, as this weird sort of situationist visionary, and and it really just came out that aspect of the character came out of nowhere nowhere for me but I enjoyed it so I I went with I I went with it and he became more more um he, he you know he just he grew to the bond villain thing sort of came in later almost <laughs> as a my private joke within the universe of the like one day I realized, oh, wait a minute, I've been making him more and more like, making him more and more like a Bond villain. So when when uh, Hollis goes to meet him in in Spook Country and they've got their new, the new Blue Ant offices in Los Angeles, <laughs> and it's totally Bond villain. It's it's like Goldfinger Goldfinger time exactly. But Eric. it's it's he you're getting to Goldfinger's headquarters before. The interior decorators are quite finished with it, which is something I've never seen in a in a Bond book. Like there's dust everywhere and lots of styrofoam chips. I've been speaking with William Gibson. His new novel is Zero History. Thank you for joining me, William. Well, thank you. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.